for most of us in this room, I think we have a biblical background, and we would associate Israel with the Bible and the Jewish people and all their history. But I think if you put all that aside and just thought about the, the history you might have learned at school and what you read in the media or you might have read in books, what you think of when you hear about the nation of Israel could be summed up, and I've dared to sum it up in about four pictures, in these sorts of things. You might think about the Holocaust of the Jews out of Nazi Germany and Europe. You might be aware that there were a lot of battles as the nation of Israel was formed and that was not, it's not really fully recognised by all nations. There's a lot of questions about Jerusalem. You might be aware from the news about um, uh, oppression of Palestinians and the displacement of them and probably quite aware of terror, a lot of terrorist organisations that are, have a lot of interest and don't really like Israel, such as Hamas, which is pictured on the bot bottom right in that slide. And I think all that would lead you to the conclusion, inevitably, that Israel is not a, a nation that's involved with peace. They have a very um, a history that was associated in our minds with um, wars in different forms and violence, and they were formed out of oppression and persecution. And so to have a title like we've had tonight of Israel and an emerging peace is really a conflict with that, and yet it is the heart of God's word and is a future we see in the short term and in the long term. And so to spoil what we're going to be looking at tonight, we believe as Bible students these two things I think we could sum it up as. In the short term, we believe and understand that Israel will exist as a nation in the land of Palestine or Canaan, where they are now, in peace. And they will exist there not fearing Arab conflict, which is, has been rampant in their his recent history. And in the long term, we believe from God's word that Israel will be the centre of worldwide peace, which is a, which is a bold call, but it is true. And it's stated in the word of God. And we're going to look at that later tonight. But to begin, I'd like to put the amazing, well, all the amazing things that are happening now, which we're also going to talk about, and the peace we can see coming in context by looking briefly at the history of Israel as a nation. And it's primarily, well, there's a lot of notable things in there, a history of conflict. And I'm talking about the modern nation of Israel, just to be clear. But a history of conflict. And it really started before Israel was even a nation. The Jewish people um, were scattered. They were destroyed. Um, Jerusalem was destroyed and the land of their home in the land of Israel was destroyed by the Roman armies under Vespasian and Titus in AD 70. And after that, they were scattered through all the world. And for 2,000 years, roughly, a bit less, bit less than that, they were nomads and they were largely um, wandering in different lands, in different people, and were persecuted. And that continued 
for 1900 years until in the late 19th century, Zionism came to the fore, where prompted by a lot of growing anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish violence, this notion of a land for the Jews. And it really came to a head under Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany, where in that time, millions of Jews died and likewise millions of Jews migrated to the land of Palestine. And so that happened. And in 1948, the United Nations voted to petition the British mandate of Palestine to two states, a Jewish state, which is blue on the map there, and a Palestinian state, which is the bright red. And immediately when the United Nations voted on that, immediately there were clashes, um, primarily between those two parties, the Palestinian Arabs and is the newly formed nation of Israel. But the Palestinians were supported by Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon in various forms. And so there was war from the beginning of this nation in 1948. We then jump forward um, a few years, almost a decade, to the Suez Crisis, 1956. And what happened here is that um, Gamal Abdel Nasser became the president of Egypt, President Nasser. And he was a strong Arab nationalist. He was strongly in favour of the Arab nations and very anti-Israel. And so under his leadership, Israel nationalised the Suez Canal, which links the Mediterranean Sea down through the Gulf of Suez down to the Indian Ocean and is a key trade route. And they nationalised it and blocked Israeli trade. And so what happens is that because they're also blocking um, France and Britain, their trade as well. And so these three, Israel, Britain and France, got in a little allegiance and said, all right, Israel, you go and invade. And then when they invade, Britain and France will come in and take control of the area. And that's what happened. Um, and successfully and all things were good, but still there was this conflict immediately between Egypt and Israel again. We then jump forward 11 more years to 1967 to the Six Day War, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. Um, the background to this is that Syria, uh, to the north of, north east of Israel, was being quite aggressive. And so to, towards Israel, Israel responds. And that triggered that all the Arab nations around them amassed forces on the border of Israel. So that um, Egypt in the south had all its armies there. Jordan was already to the east and Syria to the northeast. And also in this time, support was given by Iraq, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan, which are all colored lighter red on that map, as you can see. And in that, that was an amazing war, which we're not gonna go into any depth tonight, but Israel was completely outnumbered by nations at least. It attacked preemptively and crippled the air force of each nation, especially Egypt, and then followed this up over six days with amazing and miraculous victories on land. 
And so the net result of this was that Israel actually gained land in the, in the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights and the West Bank. And importantly, they took Jerusalem and they still have Jerusalem, arguably. We then jump forward another six years to the Yom Kippur War, 1973. And this is really a bit of a follow-up because since the Six-Day War, there'd been um, pretty lingering and sporadic aggression going on. And eventually, after six years, it became full-scale war. And so Israel was actually pretty off, caught off, off guard on this occasion as Egypt crossed the Suez and, Erit, and Syria entered from the north through the Golan Heights. And fighting on this occasion in the Yom Kippur War lasted for a month. And it ended with a disengagement agreement between Israel and Egypt. And there was a lot of talking facilitated by the United Nations. And in the end, in 1979, six years later, there were the Camp David Accords, which we'll talk about a bit later. But the Camp David Accords meant that Egypt, a real first, recognised Israel's right to exist. And from then on, they had diplomatic relations together. So, all good. A little bit of peace amongst a lot of battles, as we've already seen. We then jump forward another nine years to the, the first Lebanon war, where um, Israel attacked some Palestine, Palestine liberation organisation, PLO, strongholds in Beirut. And it was pretty minor, but it was still notable because the PLO had been pretty aggressive to Israel already. We then jump forward another uh, well, to 2006, a bit more recent. This is the only one I can actually remember, um, to what's called the Second Lebanon War. And here, um, Hezbollah, the terrorist organisation, attempted to pressure Israel to release some Lebanese prisoners. And so in this, it, while it's doing that, it killed Israel, some Israeli soldiers and captured two of them. And so in response to this, Israel... Um, launched an offensive against Hezbollah to go and get its soldiers back. And in that process, a thousand, roughly, Lebanese um, died. And then we jump forward to right now, where there's, I think we're all probably quite aware of the um, proxy conflict with Iran going on at the moment. So Iran's leaders all have a declared objective that they want to destroy the Jewish state. So Iran is the big red um, blob on the right. And so Iran's not directly um, fighting with Israel, but it's actively supporting terrorist organisations to fight these proxy wars against Israel. So it includes Hezbollah, which are in Lebanon, um, Hamas, which are in Palestine, and also the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And they're also both um, indirect... Or indirectly involved in the Syrian civil war going on at the moment. So Iran's fighting Israel there a little bit as well. And also at the moment, we'd be very aware through um, all the stuff with Donald Trump, that is Iran is continuously developing a nuclear program. Um, so it has a lot of power in the region and eventually to destroy Israel. And so it's been constantly crippled by various um, subvertive Israeli attacks. So that was very brief. The, pic the, 
the result I want you all to get from that is this map, because that's, those red are all the different nations that were involved in all those different conflicts. Which, and as we saw, there's an, been a notable conflict with a name every decade since Israel's beginning in 1948. From its, the very first day there was a war, and every decade after there's been a notable conflict involving Israel and one or many of these red nations. So there's many enemies of Israel, and over their history they have had very little peace. Which draws, I'm sure, you to the big question, well, why do we believe that Israel will have peace when they have had so many wars, have been triggered um, and been attacked so many times, and they're surrounded by all these nations that hate them, why do we believe that there will be peace for Israel? Which brings us to our reading we had tonight in Ezekiel chapter 38. Good. Um, so is it all turn up, Ezekiel chapter 38. And in there we read about... A whole lot of people. So, broadly, in the, in the first few verses, it talks about Son of Man set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Um, we read further down in verse 5 that, there's, well, verse 4, I'll turn thee back and put hooks in thy, thy jaws, and I'll bring thee forth in all thine army, horses and horsemen. All of them clothed with all sorts of armour, armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia and Libya with them. And then in verse 6 there's Gomer and Tagama and all his bands. And many people with Gog, this great leader. What's going on in this chapter is that in verses 1 to 7 there's an allegiance of nations identified were named just then and they're all named in the red areas on the map on the screen and they're an alliance that are on a warpath and in verse 8 to 12 this great army moves first against Egypt so it comes down from the north down into Egypt and then is turned around by God it turns around and attacks Israel and we see that um, in well, verse 8. Let's read verse 8 together. After many days thou, Gog, shall be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always been waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So that's the nation of Israel. And thou shalt ascend, in verse 9, and come like a storm, and thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. And this great nation comes and attacks Israel. And we find in verse 13 that Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company together to take a prey, to take away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods? And to take a great spoil. 
So this great army that's come from the north and is attacking Israel is resisted by Sheba and Dedan, who are down in the bottom um, right corner, uh, ancient names for the area of the Arabian Peninsula of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia today. Um, we know that Tarshish and the, the Young Lions are involved and that we can identify as Britain and the Commonwealth Nations and also Egypt. We know from a separate chapter in Daniel chapter 11, Egypt is part of that alliance that resists um, the northern invasion and is defending Israel which is very different from that map I put up before. Now, there's a lot of deep detail in this chapter, which I have brushed over in about three minutes, but we have three different videos on our YouTube channel or on our, or on our website, which we can recommend. So R Russia's next move foretold in the Bible and Russia in Syria foretold in the Bible and also Brexit, which is all about identifying who Tarshish is and the excitement around Brexit. But what we want to focus on tonight is Israel its, and its condition prior to this invasion that happens and how it is related to the, the nations that are around it because there are two key facts I'd like to identify with you. The first one we're going to read in verse 8 and verse 11. So come with me to Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 8. It says there, after many years, after many days, sorry, thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. So that's, this is the nation of Israel who have been gathered out of Europe and they've been gathered to this land as we saw in, at their start. So Gog is going to move against the people of Israel which have been always waste, continuing reading verse 8, but it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And sipping over to verse 11, it says there, and thou, that's Gog, shall say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. So at the time when this um, invasion happens, Israel are living in a clearly peaceful state. They, ha they are not worried about the pe the, what's going on around them. They're, they've let down their walls and let down their guard. Literally, they are unwalled villagers. The second key point is in verse th 13, which says Sheba and Dedan, and all the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to take away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to make a great spoil? And as I said, Sheba and Dedan, we can clearly identify as being um, the... Uh, nations that will areas on the Arabian Peninsula and so what it's saying is that in this time of this invasion the Arab nations like at the moment it's Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates live in that area are going to act like 
the, the allies of Israel. Alongside Britain, they are going to defend Israel, at least in word. Now, that's very different, I think you'd agree, from what we saw in the history we flicked through quickly. Um, Saudi Arabia was involved from the start in attacking Israel and they helped in, I can't remember which war, but they helped in one of them, I specifically named them, and they have been always aggressive to Israel uh, up until recently, which we're going to, that's a little spoiler for what we're going to look at, Israeli flights couldn't even fly over those nations or into those nations. So how are we going to get from that to that, where Sheba and Dedan, the Arab nations, are working with, have a working relationship and actually defend Israel when it is attacked? Two key things from the setting of Armageddon. Israel will be dwelling in safety and rest. And number two, that Saudi Arabia, or the area, will come to the defence of Israel alongside Britain and its allies. So how do we reconcile that giant map with red all over it with that, those two statements? Well, we get to it a bit like this. Um, I mentioned after the Yom Kippur War that there was a treaty made six years later in 1979. It was called the Camp David Accords and it was reached, reached in the clean-up from the Yom Kippur War, as I said. And so in that, um, we have this picture like that of a signing where um, President Carter from the USA um, facilitated the signing of the Camp David Accords by Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. Hopefully I pronounced that right. But there you go. So there's peace officially between Israel and Egypt since 1979. We can then jump forward a few more years um, to 1994 when there was a peace treaty signed between Israel and the land of Jordan, the Kingdom of Jordan. So there was a failed attempt initially, 10 years earlier, in 1984. But after that, in 1994, the accord for peace, a peace treaty, was signed by King Hussein of Jordan and Yitzhak Rabin of Israel. And in that, it settled land and water disputes that existed and paved the way for cooperation in tourism and trade that continues right to today. So that's 1994, which is 27 years ago. And then we jump to just last year, a few months ago. In 2020, we had what's called the Abraham Accords. In August through to December 2020, four more nations signed with Israel um, and facilitated by um, our well-known well Mr Trump to have peace with Israel. So the United Arab Emirates first, that was followed by Bahrain and then later Sudan and Morocco all signed on to the Abraham Accords, which were, were de declaring that they together would pursue peace, which is amazing. 
that four more nations, after so long and after such a history of conflict, have reconciled those differences and are now working together for peace. I think it's interesting to notice in those three, this is a bit of a humorous thing, but those three examples I've given, those three photos, there's always a US president um, scoring some political points in the process of doing this and getting a nice photo shoot for um, the history books. But nonetheless, this is a history-making event, and everyone pretty much agrees. Firstly, why are they called the Abraham Accords? Um, that's pretty simple. There's the originator of our faith, really. Um, Abraham had two sons. He first had a son with um, his wife's servant, Hagar. So he had a son called Ishmael, who was his firstborn son. And then he had a son with Sarah, his wife, the, the promised son, Isaac. And through Ishmael, on the left, we had um, the Arabs broadly come from Ishmael. And from Isaac, on the right, he had a son called Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And through him, we have the nation of the Jews, or the, the people of the Jews. And so why it's called the Abraham Accord is because these two branches of the line of Abraham are coming together through these to be, to be in peaceful relationships together again. So the sons of Abraham are coming back together in the Abraham Accords. So what are the fundamentals of these accords? Well, firstly, um, it's the first public normalisation of relations between an Arab, Arab country and Israel since Egypt in 1979, as we saw, and Jordan in 1994. It's the first public normalisation of relations. There's a bit of a history of um, some undercover peace but with Saudi Arabia and the UAE with Israel, but now it's public. Um, it was first signed by Israel and the United Arab Emirates, which are that Sheba in Nidan from Ezekiel 38. And then it was followed by Bahrain, and then Morocco, and later again, the nation of Sudan. So what, what, what are people saying? What do people think about the Abraham Accords? Now, I want to give a bit of a note, because I think this is quite interesting. I'm going to put a few news articles up, and most of them are from left-leaning um, uh, newspapers. They're not really newspapers anymore, because they're mostly online, but mostly left-leaning, and therefore not really pro-Israel. They lean more to the Palestinians and their rights in that conflict. However, they all recognise the importance and the great relevance of the Abraham Accords. All of them agree really on one main point, which I'd like to bring up together, that all the signatories of the Abraham Accords are coming together against Iran. Um, the nation of Iran has been pretty um, inflammatory in the region recently, and none of the people around, none of the nations around really like it, and so they've all come together mutually against Iran. And now it's, they've been doing it under the table before now, but now it's out in the open. And so um, this writer, Aaron David Miller, wrote this in the Washington, Washington Post, that a shared fear of Iran's Shia-dominated regime and violence from Sunni Muslim terrorist groups combined with Israel's aid and security, technology and intelligence field set the stage for a thaw between Israel and largely Sunni Arab nations. So they're all coming together 
um, mutually to say, to all say, Iran, um, behave yourself, do the right thing, and don't boss us around. There's another aspect that um, the Abraham Accords were quite put good publicity. Pretty much all the leaders involved um, were not in very good political visit positions and needed some good publicity. And we see this in this um, article from the Atlantic, which is an interesting one to read, but made this statement that um, the agreement is a victory for Mohammed bin Zayed, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, we'll talk about who was on the, in the news today, um, and the de facto ruler of the Emirates. Um, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Benjamin Netanyahu, the forever Prime Minister of Israel, who's um, had all sorts of dramas in Israel recently, and President Donald Trump, who doesn't need any introduction. Um, each of these men needed this agreement rather urgently for different um, political reasons. And in the case of Morocco, there was a major incentive because um, the USA threw in a deal with the Abraham Accords that they would recognise that um, Morocco was, gave, would give them sovereignty over the Western Sahara, which is to the west of Africa, um, a long way from Israel, but they have been, that's quite a disputed region and is still um, debated in the UN. But the USA would say, if you said, if you sign, it, sign up to this, we'll recognise that you have sovereignty over that region. So that was a large part for why um, Morocco signed up. So a bit of publicity for the um, men for different um, personal and selfish reasons. Fundamentally, though, the Abraham Accords are groundbreaking. Um, despite all opinions and hype, this is undoubtedly a groundbreaking event. This is from the New York Times, a very left-leaning newspaper, which said that the Abraham Accords were something of a reality check, a confirmation of a Middle East landscape that has radically changed since the Oslo Accords were signed uh, in 1993. The LL flights could now fly openly to Abu Dhabi provides tangible evidence of a Middle East in which Israel was a serious and even welcome player rather than an outcast and an enemy. That is a breakthrough and long overdue. So that, that's um, just a, someone, a commentator, writing that from their perspective. But as we see from Ezekiel 38, it's a step in the direction that peace is emerging for Israel in this area. Another um, article from the Jerusalem Post states that uh, the normalisation with Sudan is highly symbolic for, Israel, for Israelis because um, Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, Sudan, was the site of the Arab League's three no's of 1967 in um, the Six-Day War. And the three no's were no negotiations no recognition and no peace with Israel. That was made by the Arab nations in Khartoum. And yet Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, has overturned all three of them in signing up to these Abraham Accords. Now there are negotiations and more than that, there's recognition and more than that, they're pursuing peace. It's amazing, amazing to see. So where we stand now, if we were to put that map up again, is that now these green nations are all officially in a peaceful 
pursuing peace with Israel. And especially, the big one on there is down the bottom right, Sheba and Dedan. Now, I want to give a little bit of an update uh, since I made these slides because in the last week there's been a bit of a little, little bit of a change. The Abraham Accords were signed up, uh, really driven by uh, Donald Trump when he was president. But recently, um, as you all know, Joe Biden is president of the United States. And largely, Joe Biden has supported the Abraham Accords, was what I'd read previously. However, last week, there's a bit of a shaky shakiness and people are a little bit worried. Um, there's this article in the Washington Post that the Biden administration could derail the Abraham Accords, but it mustn't. No one wants them to. Um, Another part of the Abraham Accords was that most of the members um, signed up to get some nice new shiny fighter jets from the USA. So there's a lot of people that think it could have been a, a thinly veiled arms deal. So that's what President Biden is going and having a look at. But nonetheless, most people think it'll probably be okay. Still though, um, Joe Biden's not doing himself many favours with the Abraham Accords because today there was this article in the ABC that he's um, going and really um, going to slap the hand of the Prince of Saudi Arabia, um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, because of his role, people think, in the assassination of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi um, a couple of years ago. I'm sure you all saw that on the news. And so there's causing a little bit of tension in the Abraham Accords. And so we'll see where this leads in coming weeks as God works in the nations. But I guess the point I want to say is that all of those two articles don't change what's written in the Bible, do they? It doesn't change what we see biblically in God's word. And so where we stand now is, for the moment, still the same. That the nations, including Sheba and Dedan, are aligning with Israel, and a path for greater peace for Israel in this region is opening up so we'll see but remember from Ezekiel 38 which I hope you still have you should still have open Israel one will be dwelling safely and at rest they'll have let down their guard they'll be able to let down their guard and secondly Saudi Arabia will come to the defense of Israel alongside Britain and its allies these those are two clear things we can see from God's word which we expect to see happen. So, I'd now ask, like to ask the question, well, why do you think we're excited about this peace that seems to be emerging in the Middle East? Why are we, as Bible students and as Christians, excited about that? Well, I think the simple answer would be that um, because all the chess pieces in Ezekiel 38 look like they could be start really lining up. Russia has a really strong presence in, in the Middle East and in Syria especially and a pretty strong working relationship with Iran. Um, Israel, at the same time as we've seen tonight, is moving towards peace at the moment with a lot of the nations around it that it's historically had a 
conflicted relationship with. And also, Britain and the Commonwealth um, and the Arab nations are forming pretty close ties at the moment. And so, those really, those key three players, the big army at the north, Israel itself being at peace, and Tarshish and Sheba and Dedan working together, are starting to have some semblance in reality. But is that, is that exciting? That's my question. And the big question is, well, well will this peace we've talked about and we can see in the news, will that peace last? Um, and the answer is pretty clearly no. That peace will not last. Because in Ezekiel 38, all those chess pieces coming together, the result of that is a great war, we'd all know, as Armageddon. But what's exciting about that is we could be entering that all calm before the storm. And we're not excited about war because war isn't peace. It's nothing, to, nothing like it. We are excited about what comes next after Armageddon, when the time when God will bring true peace. And that's what we really like to share with all who will listen to God's word. Real peace. And this is what I talked about when Israel will be the future of worldwide peace. So what is that going to look like? Well, there'll be this great battle of Armageddon with, where all nations of the world are gathered together in Jerusalem and they're at war together. And what will happen? Jesus Christ will return. And he... Currently, he is in heaven with God, but he will return to the earth and he will end that war of the nations. Um, I'm not going to read that exactly, but we can see that those quotes on the screen are a few examples where we can see that clearly, where Christ, acting for God, comes and ends Armageddon and ends that war. The next step is that all nations regardless of race or um, previous religion or previous allegiances, will unite under one righteous, loving and selfless ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's son and is the Prince of Peace. Now, turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 9, where we see Christ as a ruler described. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, this speaks about the birth of Christ prophetically and his future. It says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. 
the zeal of Yahweh of hosts, the God of hosts, will perform this. So we see there that this ruler that God is going to raise up, his son, Jesus Christ, will be a father and the prince of peace. And his government and the government, a peaceful government, will have no end. The second fact about this real peace to come. The kingdom of God is going to fill the whole earth. If you'll turn um, over to Daniel chapter 2, we see that there in another prophecy, which we love as Bible students. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, where Daniel gives an interpretation of this vision of Nebuchadnezzar. And his conclusion is about God's kingdom to come is that Daniel 2 verse 44 and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So God's kingdom that's going to be ruled by Jesus Christ, his son, is going to fill, it's going to end all other nations and fill the whole earth. That's a clear fact, we know. We also know that the centre of that kingdom is going to be Jerusalem. Now turn back with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 2. Sorry, we're really yo-yoing here, but Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 to 4. And this is a little vision that the prophet Isaiah was given of the future. And it says there, Isaiah 2, verses 2, well, I was going to start from verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come ye let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Israel and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war any more that's an amazing vision isn't it it's a that's a quote that the United United Nations tries to pursue at the moment but as we saw, as I mentioned before, they're usually involved in a lot of conflict. But in the future, God's kingdom will bring true peace to the whole earth and all nations will remove conflict. It's an amazing hope we have. I'm sure one, anyone wants. Finally, we know that in God's kingdom, peace and joy will fill the earth for all people, regardless of their status necessarily. I'd like to 
read for you quickly. I'll just turn there to Psalm 72 and verse 7. We're in this psalm. We're given a little vision of the future and what that will look like. And it's an amazing psalm to read all the way through. But we're just going to read verse 7. It says there, In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. So in this time, real peace will be brought not only to Israel, not only to the Middle East, but to the whole earth and to all people. I'd like you to turn with me now to Micah chapter 4, where we're given another amazing vision of what this will look like. Micah chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 1. Micah chapter 4, verse 1, says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts hath spoken it, for all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, says Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I'll gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I'll make her that halted as a remnant, and her that was cast far off as a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So again, it's going to be a time of amazing peace where people that have been afflicted and tormented and cast out will have a home and will be a strong nation once again. The other quote I'd just like to briefly put up on the screen because this is really the message of God's word. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings or good news, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Now, many people, I think most people, probably think about God and the Bible as being uh, restrictive or violent or maybe bad news for their lives. But fundamentally, as I hope you've seen from the last few slides and the last few comments, the message of the Bible and God's word and his plan with the earth is all about good news and good news for all people. 
Now, that good news involves the kingdom to come, which we've talked about. It, talks, it, it involves um, nations no more being at war. But more broadly than that, that good news has a relevance for you and I right now, here, today. The good news we believe is that this book, the Bible, is holy. And it's God's message to everyone. It's God's message to Israel. It's God's message to um, Iran or Egypt or Donald Trump or the USA or Tarshish or um, any you right here today. It's God's message to everyone. We believe that there is one God and he created and he controls all things. We believe that Jesus Christ, who we spoke about, is the Son of God who lived and died on the cross and was resurrected to a mortal life. And we believe, as we've said tonight, that God's kingdom, ruled by Jesus Christ, will be here on this earth and it will be centred in Jerusalem. And we believe that by believing and being baptised, and choosing to lead a life like Jesus Christ, we can be immortal with him. And we can have a key role in that kingdom of peace to come. And that can involve every one of us tonight. To sum it up, our message tonight, there, there is an emerging peace in Israel. And we believe that in the short term, based on Ezekiel 38, that Israel will exist in that area with the walls down, feeling safe. But then war will come, and it will be a great war that will affect many people and will be devastating. But long term, we believe that God will intervene. He will send his son, and Israel will be the centre of worldwide peace. And that worldwide peace, God's worldwide peace, not man's, a peace that God creates, is something every one of you can be involved with. And you can be involved with it right now. And we would love to share that with everyone who will listen and share these exciting things with us. Thank you.